All right. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, welcome to Citizens. Uh, so good to uh, see everyone here. Uh, for those of you joining us for the first time, my name is Jason. I have the privilege of serving uh, as one of the pastors on staff here at the church. Um, it is so great to be able to step into a new year uh, with our church family. Uh, any sins you committed last night, they're, they're forgotten. And, you know, we're starting new today, turning over a new leaf. Um, but, but seriously, like, um, I just think it's very fitting that it was, you know, we had a rainy New Year's Eve, and then it's, uh, the sun is out today, and um, not to make everything hyper-spiritual, but really reminded me this morning um, of God's mercies that are new uh, every morning that are always available to us. And so, uh, if you have your Bibles, uh, if you want to turn with me to Psalm 86... Uh, we're going to look at verses 11 to 13, so just three verses. It's going to be on the screen behind me, but if you like to follow along on your mobile device um, and you can choose your translation, I'm going to be reading from the NIV, the New International Version. Psalm 86, verses 11 to 13. This is the reading of God's Word. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. For great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. Amen. Uh, let me say a quick prayer for us uh, as we begin. Holy Spirit, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you. On this first day of 2023, would you open our ears and our hearts to receive what you would have for us today? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, this morning, especially, want to welcome our children um, and our youth students. Um, it's always, I love these worship services where we can be uh, one family together, I'm never forgetting that we don't, um, our children's ministry, it's not us shipping the children away. Um, but it's really, um, we have incredible volunteers uh, who help to supplement um, what families are doing and the discipleship that's happening in the home. But it's always a joy to have our children and our youth students join us. Uh, the new year always brings with it a sense of a lot of anticipation and excitement. And I'm really looking forward to what God has in store for our church in 2023. Uh, at our last staff meeting of the year, I asked each of our staff members to share one word or phrase that they felt encapsulated their 2022. And, and the phrase that I came up with for myself was growing pains. Okay, growing pains. And um, for those of you who don't know, we officially launched as citizens uh, in November of 2019, so four months before the entire world shut down in the pandemic. And so 2022 was actually our first full year in person. So everything uh, last year was new for us. Uh, we were learning in real time how to navigate post-pandemic life, uh, how to manage the rapid growth of our community while staying true to our vision and values. We were bringing on new staff members. And so everything was like a growing experience and it really stretched and challenged me as a leader um, and I feel like 2023 is going to be really just a continuation of that. But I'm excited because I really do feel like God is up to something within our community. Um, DC mentioned this, but uh, many of you know that our big focus as a church uh, this past year has been a spirit-filled life. 
And so all of our sermon series, all of our initiatives and events over the past six months have been created with the intention of helping our church move from just an abstract understanding of God to a life with God, where a life where we're walking in step with the Spirit. You know, Carol and I, uh, my wife Carol, we've been married for almost 11 years, and I can tell you there are some days when we just feel like we're on completely different pages, we're not communicating, it just feels like things are off, and you know, it, everything just feels like a battle and it's so difficult. And I can tell you there are other days when it just feels like we're in the pocket, where we are locked in step with each other, where it really feels like we're doing life together, we're moving in the same direction, and really this is what we desire for our church. This is what this entire year-long theme has been about. What we desire is to get to a place where all of us are doing life with God, moving in the same direction together. And so if you remember back in August, we began this year-long journey of a Spirit-filled life with a series on the Holy Spirit. Because we said, how do you even know what a life in the Spirit looks like if we don't even know who the Holy Spirit is? Right? And then in the fall, we did a series on the fruit of the Spirit, what a life with the Spirit produces in us. And today I'm excited to launch a new sermon series called The Liturgical Life. And this entire series is going to center around the different spiritual practices that will allow us to more deeply experience the Spirit's work in and through us. So basically, we went from who is the Holy Spirit to what does the Holy Spirit produce in and through us? And now this series is going to answer the question, how do we organize our lives in a way that makes room for the Spirit to do that work? Okay, and the title of this series is kind of a strange title, and especially uh, if you're a student, you probably have never heard the word liturgical or liturgy. But really, this title was born out of a conversation I was having with a friend of mine uh, early last year. And he was asking me how my mom was doing. And for those of you who don't know, my mom has been battling advanced stage breast cancer since 2020. And um, I was sharing with my friend that my mom since then has been on this three-week chemo cycle. And what that looks like is she'll get chemotherapy. And then week one, she's like, she's completely out of commission. She can't do anything. She can't move. She can't get out of bed. Severe nausea, uh, vomiting, fatigue. Um, she just can't do anything. Week two, she starts to be able to move around a little bit. Um, you know, it's kind of like somebody with a mild illness or a cold. She can start cooking a little bit. She can go for walks, but she's not 100%, okay? And then week three, she's thriving. If you saw my mom on week three, you probably wouldn't even know she's battling cancer. Uh, she looks good. She feels good. Uh, she can pretty much do everything that she used to do. Um, but then by the end of week three, as much as her body feels like it's at 100%, you know, that just means the cancer cells are back up, and so she's got to do chemo again, and the whole cycle um, starts over. And, um, you know, something that I was sharing with my friend is that ever since my mom started these chemo treatments, our family has just collectively been on this three-week chemo cycle with her. Okay, so we know, like, we're very cognizant when it's week one. And so if it's week one of that cycle... Everyone in our family knows, do not bother your mom. Don't call her. Don't, like, try to schedule any visits with her. Don't ask her to babysit the kids. Just let her rest. Week two, we might schedule a few visits. 
but we, we basically save all of our family vacations, all of our birthday dinners and celebrations, all for that third week. And we've kind of reshaped and reorganized our entire lives so that we can maximize our time with her. And I was sharing this with my, with my friend, and he kind of said something on a whim. He said, wow, bro, your life is a liturgy. He's like, your, your life is a liturgy. And, and that really resonated with me, and I went home and I started chewing on that, and I realized that was so true. You know, for those of you who don't know what liturgy is, the easiest way to think about uh, liturgy is it's kind of like a script for a religious service. So um, we get together, and it's all the rituals, ceremonies, practices a community engages during a corporate worship gathering. So you might hear someone say, oh man, that church does a lot of liturgy. And that just means usually that that church has a lot of different elements in their worship service. As a part of our liturgy, for those of you, like, you know, if you're here at the beginning of our service, which half of you aren't, okay, no, no guilt trip, okay, but we do open the service with something called a call to worship, okay? Um, we have a call to worship, then a song of response, and then we have a confession of sin, a confession of faith, and then a song of renewal and so forth. And there are, there's this rhythm that we follow each week. And that rhythm is intentional because we want to order and organize our entire service in a way that it conveys something about who God is. It conveys something about worship. And we believe that these seemingly ordinary rituals are actually shaping us and forming us in profound ways. And they're resisting the dominant narratives we're being fed by our culture. So... There's a reason why we open our service each week with a call to worship, and then we close our service each week with a benediction. Because we're trying to say something that in our lives, God has the first word and God has the last word. When you go out there in the world, you're going to hear a lot of different things from a lot of different people. Your parents are going to call you something. Your coworker is going to judge you and call you something. People are going to say different things to you and different voices are going to shape you. But by starting our worship with God's voice and by closing our worship with God's voice, we're saying that God's word has the final word over our lives. Why do we, why do we have you stand and then sit and then stand? It's not so that we can annoy you. We, we're doing that because we believe that the act of standing and sitting and standing conveys something about what worship is. That when we come here on Sunday, we're offering all of ourselves, body, mind, and soul, and heart, in worship to God. Worship is not just something we're passively observing. And this is working against the dominant narrative in our culture that's trying to turn us all into consumers. That's trying to turn us all into people who say, what can you do for me? What can I get from you? And so by having you guys stand and sit and stand and use our bodies, we're conveying something about what worship is. Why do we do a confession of sin each week? It's not for the sake of confessing. It's not that so that we can feel bad about ourselves. Confession of sin is a communal practice that helps us remember that we worship a God who sees us in our most vulnerable state, who sees us naked, who sees all of our flaws, mistakes, inadequacies, shortcomings, and still loves us deeply. And by doing that, we are resisting the dominant narrative in our culture that says you have to be a certain type of way, you have to look a certain type of way, you have to make a certain amount of money in order to be loved and accepted and validated. And every time we confess our sins and we receive the words of assurance, we're saying, no, 
God sees me as I am, and he still loves me. Okay, and so that's what liturgy is, these practices and rhythms that give form to our service. But what I think what my friend was reminding me was something very profound. That liturgy is not just something that happens on Sunday. It's something that we live into every moment of our lives. All of us have specific rituals and practices that guide and give form to our lives and tell a story about who we are and what matters to us. And if you're taking notes, I know our children have beautiful notes um, provided by our children's ministry director. The first point is that we are liturgical people. Okay, we are liturgical people. All of us have these rhythms that give form to our lives. And so for my family, we're on a three-week liturgical rhythm where we know we do nothing on week one and then we feast and celebrate on week three. And then we organize our entire lives according to that rhythm. And that rhythm is saying something about what's most important to us. Okay? Now, the reason I chose this text today from Psalm 86 to launch our series as well as kick off the new year is really that first line in verse 11. David reminds us that following Jesus is not a set of beliefs, but a way of life. He says, teach me your way, Lord. He doesn't say, teach me your ideas or teach me your philosophy. He says, teach me your way. Show me how to live. Being a Christian, contrary to popular belief, is not just knowing the right things about God. It is adopting a way of life, okay? This morning, I know everyone, a lot of people have a New Year's resolution to exercise this year. That'll end in a few days, but I'll, I'll let you keep dreaming about that, okay? But I can tell you a lot about exercise, okay? I know quite a bit. I've Googled it a lot, okay? I can tell you a lot about the health benefits of exercise. I can tell you what exercises work out what body parts. By the end of my talk, you could be an expert on exercise, but you will not see any changes to your body unless you actually exercise, unless you actually create space in your life, unless you actually make room to exercise. And you might say, well, I don't have time to exercise. I got so many things to do. I'm so busy. Well, if it's that important to you and if you want to see transformation, then you have to reorganize your life to make time. You could go to seminary, you could read a million books about prayer, but you will never see prayer transform your life unless you actually pray. It's almost ridiculous to say this, but this is how we've treated our faith, as something we know or believe rather than something we live. We say, how come I'm still such an angry person? How come I can't forgive this friend or this family member? How come I'm so stressed out and anxious all the time? Why can't I shake this addiction? I believe in Jesus. What's going on? Well, what's probably going on is that you want what Jesus offers, but you're unwilling to reorganize your life to get what Jesus offers. We want the life of Jesus, but we often don't want the lifestyle of Jesus. We have a lot of actors in our community, people pursuing music, creatives. A lot of people come to LA and they want to act. They want to be an actor, but talk to an actor who's been in the grind for 10 years, and they will say, that's great that you want to act, that's great that you know what it takes to be an actor, but unless you reorganize your life so that this dream can actually become a reality, 
you will not become an actor. You will not see any growth. You will not see any progress in your career. Now, people tend to get a little bit antsy whenever you talk about spirituality this way, and understandably so, right? Because many of us, we grew up in churches where we were told to do all these spiritual things because those things made you a good Christian. They said pray, they said fast, they said read your Bible, and we never got any explanation as to why we were doing them. We were just told, this is what good Christians do. You fast, you pray, you read your Bible, you do your daily devotionals, go to morning prayer, you do all these Christian activities. And if there was trouble in your life or you had a big decision that you were struggling with, what did our pastors tell us to do? Pray harder. Go fast. Go read your Bible. And we became obsessed with the rituals themselves rather than what the rituals were pointing us to. We began to see spiritual practices not as a means to connect with God, but as a task to complete or a duty to fulfill. You know, um, in preparation for Christmas this year, um, our family did something for the first time, and I don't know why we didn't think of this earlier. We set up this wooden block on our piano, and on one side of the wooden block it says nice, and on the other side it says naughty. And then, you know, when it's turned to nice, that means Santa's coming, and when it's turned to naughty, it means Santa's not coming. And this is so anti-gospel in every way. And as a pastor, it makes me ashamed that I did this. But desperate times call for desperate measures. If you have young kids, you know, you, you, know, you, you got to do what you got to do. And this method produces results. Okay? I'm like, clean your room. They're like, oh, right now? I'm like, oh, shoot, it looks like it's going to the naughty side. And they're like, all right, all right, all right, clean my room, clean my room, clean my room. You know? It's like, oh, it's like midway through. It's, you know, right? And... And I feel like this is often how we think about spiritual practices, right? Like if we pray, if we read, your, read our Bible, if we complete our Bible reading plan, then all of a sudden we're on God's good side. We start to earn our favor with God. He'll start to answer our prayers. And then if we don't go to church, if we don't honor the Sabbath, if we're not doing these things, then God's unhappy with me. But this is not how spiritual practices work, and I really want to make that clear. These are not rules we follow or duties to fulfill in order to get God. They are gifts given to us so that we can experience the fullness of God's grace that's already and always flowing toward us. If you notice, David doesn't, David said, doesn't say, teach me your way, Lord, so I can earn your favor. Or teach me your way, Lord, so that you'll be faithful or fix all my problems or answer all my prayer requests. He says, teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. That I may rely on your faithfulness. He's saying God's faithfulness is constant. It's unchanging. It's steady. He's faithful no matter what. What David is asking God to do here is Teach him a way of life that allows him to depend on and live in that faithfulness that's always flowing toward him. He's saying, help me to adopt a way of life that helps me to rely on you. You see, all of us will either organize our lives in ways that deform us and pull us away and disconnect us from God and others, or we will organize our lives in ways that reform us that draw us more deeply into the life source that is God in ways that cultivate deeper joy and peace and satisfaction. And whether we want to admit it or not, all of us live liturgy. 
Coming to church and gathering on this Sunday morning, that's a part of our liturgical rhythm. We all have habits, routines, and rituals that form us to love certain things and train us to align our lives around those things. Put another way, and this is the second point, we'll put it up. Our liturgy reflects what we love. Our liturgy reflects what we love. Jamie Smith talks about this a lot in his book, You Are What You Love. And if I could summarize the premise of that book, Jamie Smith basically says, at our very core, foundationally, we are lovers. That we are driven by our desire. We are driven by what we long for. Not what we believe or what we know, but what we love. Okay, like, there are many things that I know to be true. I know Diet Coke is probably not that good for me. I know it. Okay, you don't have to tell me that. That isn't going to stop me from drinking it. Why? Because I love it. And I've habituated my body to love it. You know why? Because from a very young age, I drank Diet Coke with every single meal I had. And now, I can't have a meal unless I have a Diet Coke. Okay? My body, my mind, my soul has been habituated to love Diet Coke. I did not think my way to love Diet Coke. I habituated myself into it. The entire advertising industry is built on this exact premise. What is advertising? Here's how advertisers get you. They first give you a picture of the person you want to be. They say, look at this. Don't you want to be this person? This is a vision of what your life could look like. And then they say, buy this product, and then your life can look like that. And the more you buy this product, the more your life will look like that. And all of a sudden, you'll start to buy that product, and then you'll realize, oh my gosh, I'm falling in love with that vision. You'll buy other products that that company offers you, all because you've aligned your life, you've aligned your liturgy with that vision. And what Jamie Smith is saying that, is that our desires are always oriented towards some vision of the good life. And the challenge right now of living in L.A. is that there are so many rival visions of the good life that we're being fed by our families and our culture among our friends. And these rival visions are always trying to pull us away from God and the kingdom by habituating us in very specific ways. When David in verse 11 says... Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. He's acknowledging, God, my heart is divided. My heart is pulled in all these different directions, captivated by these rival visions. And he's saying, I want to know your way, Lord. There are these visions that are trying to hijack my desires and affections. And he's saying, give me a new blueprint for how to live. Give me a new way of life. Now watch this. David prays his prayer, teach me your way, and then centuries later, Jesus comes on the scene, and you know what he says? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. David says, is there a blueprint? Show me your way. Teach me your way. Centuries later, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the blueprint. I am the model for what a full, meaningful life looks like. We often look at Jesus and we say, Lord, make me like you. We say, I want to be like that. How, what, like how, I want to I have such an inner peace that everything could be going wrong around me, that I could be in the middle of a storm and I could fall asleep. Give me that. Right? I'm preparing this sermon and this morning, what's the first thing I do in the new year? Yell at my kids. Right? 
And I'm like, how come I can't be like that? I want to be able to have peace in the middle of a storm. Jesus, I want to have the faith that you have, that you could look at 5,000 people who are hungry, have five loaves and two fish, and just know that all of them are going to be fed. How do I look at the impossible things in my life and say, I'm going to be fine. Nothing can faze me. I want that. I want to be so patient and loving that someone could nail me to a cross and the only words out of my mouth are, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Give me that. And so we say we want that and then Jesus says, well, if you want that, live like me. He says, if you want that vision of what a good life looks like, he says, if you want that, you're going to have to reorganize your life. If you want something, you're going to have to rethink your liturgy. Okay, and so today is just kind of an introduction to this series. Each week, we're going to kind of look at the lifestyle of Jesus, and we're going to look at the liturgy that formed Jesus' life. We're going to look at the routines, the practices, the rituals that gave shape to Jesus' life. We're going to look at silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, fasting, hospitality, generosity, prayer, reading the Bible. And we're going to talk about how these simple practices might transform us to look more like Jesus. And our hope by the end of these 10 weeks is that all of us will start to become aware of how these seemingly ordinary, meaningless rituals can actually shape us in profound ways and anchor us in a life with God. Okay, let me just give you one simple example from my own life. Because last year, um, uh, I, as I was preparing for this sermon series, I started to do a liturgical audit of my life. And I hope that everyone by the end of this 10 weeks at some point will do a liturgical audit of their life, okay? Last year, my wife and I, we were gifted a subscription to Cometeer. Okay, some of you probably have heard of what Cometeer is. It was a game changer for us. Okay, for those of you who don't know, Cometeer is basically a coffee subscription service. They, they send you these like um, Keurig-sized uh, coffee capsules once a month, and they give you a supply for the, for the whole month. It was an incredible gift, and it changed our lives because we could get amazing quality coffee, and we could have it in 10 seconds. Okay, you just melt the Keurig-sized thing, pour hot water in it, and you're off. Okay, and they kind of like, I think they had like MIT chemists figure out the exact temperature you were supposed to flash freeze these um, coffee capsules. Anyways, it tastes really good. It's comparable with anything you might get in a coffee shop in LA. Okay, still support your local businesses, okay? <laughs> uh, it's not cheap, but it's, it, given that a comparable cup of coffee these days is like five bucks, it will save you a lot of money. Not only that, you don't waste any time brewing anymore. I used to do the pour over method. You just literally drop it into a cup, pour hot water over it, done in like 10 seconds, and we're out the door. Okay. Well, as I'm doing this liturgical audit in my life, I had to ask myself, how is this ritual of getting the cometeer ready, 10 seconds, and out the door, how is that actually shaping my and Carol's life? Right? That, like, that's something you don't really think about, how you get your morning coffee, but that's just an everyday ritual. First thing we do when we get up. How is that shaping our lives? What is it habituating me to love? And I realized that this is habituating me to love efficiency, 
and productivity over everything else because that's the best thing Cometeer offers, right? It's the same quality, extremely efficient. So Carol and I, we don't even have to talk to each other. We can grab our respective Cometeer capsules, get it into our own cups, we're out the door, okay? And the story, that routine, I realize that it's ingraining in me is that there's not enough time in the day to waste waiting for a cup of coffee to brew or waiting in line at a coffee shop because there are too many things I have to do. So we had to change something. So now what Carol and I do at least once a week on a day she's working from home, even though we know we have Cometeer in our freezer, here's what we do. We go to a local coffee shop. We wait in line, we get our coffee, and then we sit and we drink together. And then we have a conversation. We do it at least once a week. Two ways to get your morning coffee, two rituals that essentially accomplish the same thing. They get coffee in your body, and yet they form us in profoundly different ways. In the coffee shop, we learn how to wait. We have to bump into our neighbors. I have to have a brief conversation with the barista, and then I get to have and sit and have a conversation with my wife, who we never get to talk because we got kids. With Cometeer, we're out the door. We can get to work without talking to one person. We're drinking our coffee in the car, listening to a podcast by ourselves, and we get to work and we start the day. I guarantee you, you watch two people over the course of a year, one person who does the coffee shop every day and one person who does the cometeer every day, they will be formed to love different things. It's just a fact of life. One habituates our hearts toward efficiency, productivity, and the urgent, while the other habituates our hearts toward patience, presence, and relationship. One ritual gets us to work without having had one conversation the other gets us to work having had multiple conversations, perhaps one with the most important person in my life, my spouse. Is going to the coffee shop more time consuming? Absolutely. But if it's important to you, you have to reorganize your life so that you can adopt that ritual. You have to get up a little, er little bit earlier. You have to push your first meeting back by 15 to 20 minutes. But this is what you have to do for anything that's important to you. And obviously, the point of this is not for us to be legalistic. Again, for us to see this as something that we have to check off the to-do list. The point of this is to make us aware of the fact that all of life is liturgy. All of life is liturgy, and all liturgy is doing something to us. Okay. I'm almost done. I know a lot of us are going to hear this, and you're going to be like, okay, how the heck am I going to add more to my life. My life is already crazy as it is, and now we're going to do a sermon series, and you're going to tell me to add Bible reading, and you're going to tell me I have to fast and add these periods of silence and solitude. I got no time. There, I, I, am, I am completely, like, maxed out. I'm a new parent, and I barely have time to wash my face, let alone add Bible reading to my already limited schedule. My job has me working 80 hours a week. I have zero margin. I'm constantly stressed out, meeting deadlines. And you're talking to me about adding all these new routines into my life. That's impossible. And we start to see spiritual practices as things we have to do. And that is triggering for me, especially people like me 
Asian-American, raised by immigrant parents who were always taught the importance of fulfilling your duty as a firstborn son. And that is triggering. You're telling me I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do all these other things. And it just feels like following Jesus is just adding more duties I have to fulfill. But I want you to listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is saying, learn from me. Learn my way of life, not so you can be more tired and more burdened. I'm doing this so you can find rest for your souls. The liturgical life above all things is an invitation to rest in Jesus. Okay, and this is the final point. point. Our liturgy teaches us to rest in Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm going to show you how to live, not so that you can have more work on your plate, not so that you can have more things to do. I'm showing you how to live because I want you to rest. I'm going to show you how to live because your current way of life is killing you. Right now, they say that 65% of all college students struggle with deep anxiety and depression. And that number is increasing by the day. That means more than half, probably by the time our kids are in college, that's going to be three quarters of the population is going to suffer from depression and anxiety. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to live like you're in bondage anymore. I don't want you to live in a way that's sapping you of all your joy and spiking your anxiety levels. Follow me, and I'll show you how to be free. Follow me, and I'll show you how to live. My yoke is easy and light. So many of our liturgies are habituating into us a life of constant striving. They're forming us in a way that makes us feel like we have to constantly do more, achieve more, be someone, make more, that we are not enough, that there's more we have to do to be fulfilled, to belong, to be loved. And I'm going to tell you, each practice we're going to cover throughout this series is going to tell a different story. It's going to tell the story about a God who loved you so much that he gave his own life for you. It's going to tell a story about a God whose grace is always abundantly flowing toward you. It's going to be a story about a God who says, in my son, you are enough. That you are loved, you are accepted, you are valued. David says in verse 13, for great is your love toward me. You have delivered me from the depths, from the realm of the dead. The liturgical life is an opportunity for all of us to experience and be transformed by this great love every moment of our lives. Let's pray. Especially given that this is the first Sunday of the new year, you know, and we're, we're probably going to do this pretty much every week, but I want us to take a moment and just walk through some of the liturgies in your life. Some of the routines, rituals, even the simple ones. Whether it's grabbing your phone first thing in the morning, 
having your phone speak to you as the last thing you hear at night. How you interact with your kids, with your parents. What are the habits, routines, rituals that are forming us in ways that we don't even know? And maybe in the quietness of our hearts, we can pray this same prayer over 2023. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Show me a different way to live that will free me. Show me a way to live that will allow me to more deeply experience the reality that I'm loved by a Heavenly Father who desires what is best for me. Let's just take a moment to do that. Holy Spirit, I know that the first day of the new year always comes with a whole slew of New Year's resolutions where we want to hit the ground running, we want to conquer this year, and we see a world of possibility. But I pray that as a congregation, we would make a decision in this moment to begin this year with rest. that we wouldn't rest at the end of the year when all of our energy is depleted, but we would be able to rest at the beginning of the year understanding that the work is finished. The work is finished because Jesus came. He was nailed to a cross. And because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, there is nothing more that we need to do. There is nothing we need to prove at this very moment, before we've stepped one foot into 2023, that we would know that we are loved, that we are treasured and cherished by the creator of the universe. Help us to rest. We thank you for this word. We're excited about what you will do in and through this church in 2023. We love you. We give you all the praise, honor, and glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.